everybody. Welcome to Canary Cry Radio. This is Basil. And this is Gons. And Basil's yes. here, but he won't be in a second. And then he'll be back. And then I'll be back. Yes, I'm I'm currently on the road traveling around the globe or the, the pancake, either way you want to look at it. <laughs> and uh yeah, and so I'm I'm back on the old headset. Uh you know, the, the, many of you may remember this headset. It's it's recorded a lot of Canary Cry radio episodes from all over the, the planet. Uh, uh, but now it's back and you'll probably notice the quality difference. Um, you'll also notice that it seems like my internet connection at this hotel was, you know, pretty standard hotel internet, which is to say the worst in the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so please bear with us. Also, in addition to all of this, I was a few minutes late. So you'll hear me, you'll hear me pop back in there. Yeah. You make a nice, nice entry. Nice, yeah. smooth. With some nice background noise, a nice <laughs> air conditioner. It's, it's really great. You totally guys are love it. disrupting it's, our guests. I mean, it was yeah, wonderful. It's, it's, it's like a throwback. Oh, hold on. I got, a, yeah, I got room got, service got? here. Room service. Hey, yes. Thank you. Wonderful. I'll just take it. Is this for me right here? Well, the whole thing. I'll take the whole thing. Here, that's for you. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I got a sign for it? Okay. Okay. Here we go. Make sure to give the man a tip, Basil. Oh, I'm, I, I tipped. I'm on the radio right now, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> how much you guys think I should tip him? Forty uh, percent. Okay, you got uh, it. Whoa, um, big time. Gotta do this. Gotta do this. Well, based on the there time of go. the day, it is. I would say. Thank you, buddy. Yeah. You too, man. Okay, so there we go. <laughs> I just got some room service delivered. Uh, so it's that's proof. Proof I'm in an actual <laughs> hotel. <laughs> this is this is some real good stuff. Anyways, guys, good radio. So yeah, I, so I apologize for everything that I've ever done, including uh, the the poor the poor uh, act I pulled on this whole episode. Anyways, that being said, I guess we should jump right into it, huh? Well, there's a couple other things to mention here uh, just beforehand. Uh, okay. First off. Uh, we, you might think that we haven't really posted an episode in a while, which is true. We haven't had episode one eleven come out. It's been about a month, uh, but it's because, well, there's no real good excuse for it, but we have been publishing Canary Cry News Talk every week. So we've been trying to keep yeah, up with have. all the things going on. And uh, so if you, can you guys check aren't out. subscribed to Canary Cry News Talk, you're really missing out. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of uh, more nonsense stuff. Coming and from we us. do, we've been doing about one or two uh, a week, eh? Uh, we've been doing one a week. We we did two for the first like week or two, and then yeah. we've been doing one a week. Yeah. Don't make me pull up facts, bro. <laughs> you want me to throw up the facts? Anyways, you should check that out. It's good. We've been following a lot of the news stories coming out. Some you may have heard of, some you may not have. Um, but you know, I people have been asking us to do sort of a a news news situation for a while and we jumped on in we premiered a few episodes here on this uh feed but if you have not yet subscribed go to your itunes player go or, or uh, whatever podcast player that's what it is and search canary cry news talk you will not be disappointed what are you eating there i'm just curious since you didn't wait till after sorry August. i'm just so hungry man <laughs> <laughs> it's okay so hungry. but i'm sure everybody's wondering what what you're eating everybody wants to know what i order way too expensive on the menu no we're gonna get um, comments from people saying 
enough with the nonsense at the beginning. Let's just get to the I know, episode. This is probably one of the most unprofessional episodes we've ever done. Um, but the information <laughs> is fantastic. Gary is fantastic. Uh, I am mediocre. And Gons, you did pretty well yourself, if I do say so. Yeah, we're okay. We're hit or miss on uh, these episodes, but the guests are always spot on. So, okay, that's all right. This Let's is get to right the episode here. then. Yes. Genesis six, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose, and the Lord said. My spirit shall not always strive with man, but that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Numbers 13. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, the land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. This is Canary Cry Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Gons. This is episode number 111. Basil may or may not join us later this evening. He is, as always, traveling somewhere, probably in a flying saucer, moving around, trying to find internet connection. And if he does, he'll join us. But in the meantime, we got plenty to talk about. Conspiracy is defined as a secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful. and you know, the scriptures, the word of God reveals perhaps the biggest, and I mean biggest in the literal sense, conspiracy of all time and reveals it to us. Our guest today is a Christian contrarian who has maintained a lifelong love affair with biblical prophecy, history, and mythology. His extensive study has encompassed the Bible and Gnostic scriptures, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, or I'm saying that wrong, Bhagavad Gita. Uh, Gilgamesh and other ancient epics, language etymology, and secret society publications. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, 
how secret societies and the descendants of giants plan to enslave mankind, which details the role of modern-day Nephilim in Satan's plan to install the Antichrist at the end of days. Welcome, Gary Wayne. Gary, how you doing, buddy? Doing very well, and so happy to be here with you tonight and to uh, talk a little bit about my book and wherever else the conversation goes, I think. Well, uh, generally, most times the audience is uh, pretty interested in you know, the subject, and it really raises a lot more questions and curiosity out there. So that's, that's what I hope we're going to do a little bit of tonight. Absolutely. And, you know, our audience here at Canary Cry Radio is pretty well-versed with the whole Genesis 6 account. Um, I would say a majority of the people that listen agree with the sort of divine beings that rebelled narrative, uh, more so than the Sethite narrative that's taught in, you know, seminaries and things. So, you know, just as a setup, people are aware of the Genesis 6, you know, Nephilim, sons of God, as being sort of a fallen angelic thing, that paradigm. So, um, you know, it won't be unfamiliar, so we can get into the nitty gritty, and that will probably be more appealing to uh, our listeners. But, um, you know, to start off, you uh, describe yourself as a Christian contrarian. That's really interesting. Why do you, uh, why did you choose that as your label? Well, because, uh, you know, I wanted to convey a little bit of where I'm coming from and what I'm a little bit about, and, you know, hopefully it's uh, similar to what it says in Acts about the the Bereans where, you know, you verify everything, and I try and verify everything uh, in Scripture no matter what anybody says. So I don't rely on what people say. I'll listen, but I will check it out through the Scriptures. And I will also take on issues, whether it's Genesis 6 or many, many other topics that aren't taught in seminary schools or aren't taught in your local churches, and I'm not afraid to dig into it, and I'm not afraid to talk and discuss whether or not we can resolve everything or not about some things that may be you know, pushed under the carpet that people want to ignore. So from a contrarian perspective, absolutely a literalist Christian, but prepared to take on things that... Uh, standard orthodoxy and institutionalism doesn't do in Christianity. Right. Why do you think that that system has been built? Do you think it's just the, you know, just just the standard patterns of institution when you start getting into hierarchies and, you know, doctrines that, you know, are passed down through, you know, various authors and researchers and scholars that it just starts to solidify more and more and it becomes this, you know, giant regurgitation machine? Yeah, I think so. And I think even deeper than that, but I think that's part of that. Uh, you know, and certainly when we look at what Jesus was talking about in the time of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he used to talk to the Pharisees about, you know, taking the words and doctrines of humans as they interpret the Bible over what the Bible says. And I think that always comes in, especially in the larger organizations. But Below that surface are the Gnostic moles and the ones who have been invading Christianity and not wanting, uh, I think, the, the curriculum or the doctrines or the teachings to talk about things that they don't want talked about because they're on the other side of this whole war, whether it be here on heaven or, or here on earth or in the spiritual realm. And I think the Gnostics have a significant role to play in suppressing uh, these more supernatural events, which, but again, which is really kind of surprising because, you know, the Bible is supernatural. And, and if you talk about Jesus' miracles, I mean, that's supernatural. If you talk about the resurrection, that's supernatural. So why 
why have it just sort of squeezed down to this narrow view of what they want talked about? Because it leads into questions and more questions that they just don't want to deal with because they want to keep us dumbed down. And I think that's coming more from the other side than just sort of the standard sanitization of institutionalization. Right. That's really interesting, you know, because it seems like when you say Gnostic, um, you know, can you define that for us? Because, you know, as far as I understand it, it's sort of a, uh, there's a historical definition, but there's also kind of a modern take on it. Yeah. And it's an ancient religion too. So uh, it has several different layers of meanings. And the first thing that, you know, literalist Christians need to understand is, is that there are many Gnostics that actually call themselves Christians, and they actually believe they're Christians. They just don't believe in the same doctrines that we do, but they do adopt uh, certain aspects of Jesus as a prophet status, but not as a deity status. So you've got several different layers of what Gnosticism is. First of all, is it is a polytheist or multiple god uh, religion, and it is the religion of the Freemasons and the secret societies. And this religion uh, is a religion that is a cosmology as it has... Oops, sorry. Are you still there? Sorry, I, I, I'm still here. We, we just had Basil come in here to interrupt. Oh, I see. Okay. I just, uh... <laughs> well, hello, sorry. Basil. Hello. Sorry I'm late, boys. It's all right, as usual, showing up late. Uh, sorry, but Gary was in the middle of uh, explaining uh, the Gnostic religion. And uh, uh, continue, Gary. Sorry about that. Oh, and please. so, yeah, there's many, many, as I was saying, is that it's a cosmology as it evolves over uh, the millennia. And it is a religion that is inclusive of uh, Kabbalism and Jewish mysticism. It's the mysticism that were part of the Essenes. It was the mysticism that moved into Europe. It is the same religion of the Albigensenians and the Cathars. It is the same religion of Zoroastrianism as you move back into history. It is Eastern religions. It is Greek philosophy all coming together into one religion as we know it today as modern Gnosticism, which again tries to umbrella uh, Christianity and is going to try and bring Christianity into this polytheist religion before they're done. And it's a religion that goes all the way back before the flood. It is a religion that goes all the way back to the patriarchs of the Masonic uh, organization that also came about in the same time of uh, the the giants of Genesis 6 and before, but with patriarchs such as Enoch and Lamech and Tubal-Cain. And, of course, I'm talking about the descendants of, uh, uh, of Cain as opposed to the descendants of Seth. And if for people who, and I think your audience would probably be aware of it, but just in case they're not, there's two lineages in, in Genesis, and they have names that are very, very similar and identical, and they also are pronounced very, very similar, the ones that are just sort of close. But they're two distinct lines, and when I talk about Enoch or Lamech of the lineage of Cain, these are the evil ones, not the good ones like uh, the holy Enoch that was son of Jared that was raptured to heaven. So this is a global polytheist religion that is all one religion and has one source. Their pantheon is different by names of the gods that they use, but those are just vernacular names. 
but it's essentially the same religion. And this is the religion of the Gnostics that has infiltrated Christianity from within, and that's why we see one of the clear markers of what they're Two clear markers that they bring that you can identify them with is one is they believe in allegorical interpretation as opposed to literal interpretation. And they believe everything in Scripture, uh, you can't take the, the top narrative. You have to be initiated or enlightened to understand the true meaning through allegories and symbols, just as they do in their secret societies. And then the second thing they like to do is, is they like to say because of that, the Bible isn't accurate. And so when you had, like, the Jesus seminars in the 90s, that's what they're trying to do is just sort of bring the Bible down because they want to turn it into an allegorical interpretation and de-deify Jesus as they try and gnaw and destroy Christianity from within in preparation for the end time. Yeah, you know, let's, let's dig into Cain a little bit if we can because I've often had this theory, and I think you— put into words maybe some of the things that have been kind of knocking around in my head, which is basically that Cain was sort of the, uh, the guy who established civilization in a sense. And um, I also tend to think that he's maybe the first one to create barter or, you know, money exchange for sort of uh, works or items. And, and there's, there seems to be a pattern. If you read Genesis four based on the curse uh, you know, that when he works the ground, nothing will grow. Uh, it seems like Cain would have to hire people or, you know, direct people to do the building, do the, you know, growing of food and that sort of thing um, to develop civilization. Have you seen anything like that or, or, or see that pattern? Well, you, when, when we look at Genesis, we see some very, very curious narratives and very, very, what I would call stingy information. We get a hint of what's going on, but we're not really told the whole story. And there was so much, I think, that was going on in prehistory than what we're given in Genesis. And so, you know, you take Cain as, as, as that classic example where he gets ostracized, but he needs a mark uh, to go somewhere and uh, be protected by some people, perhaps future humans, but we're not told. But he need, he's, he's clearly afraid of being hurt by somebody, and he goes to a place called Nod, and first thing he does uh, is is he seems to take a wife, which there isn't somebody there at that point in time, and he has a son named Enoch, and he names his first city that he builds with walls after Enoch. Well, if there's just a few people, what do you need cities, and why do you need these walls? And then you hear about some of the sort of the... Uh, developments that the descendants of Cain are, are doing, whether or not it's uh, building or it's uh, music or uh, what, what have you, or Tubal Cain with his metallurgy. Um, so you're being hinted at something that is, is going on here that we're really not privy to in the Bible. But if you get outside the Bible, and just to warn the, uh, the audience, one of my contrarian natures is, is I do use outside sources as what the introduction will do, but I will measure everything against what it says in the Bible. So I'm trying to use that for more for context. But did you have a question? No, I was just agreeing with you that, that you know, okay. books like the Book of Enoch and Jasher are familiar to uh, our audience. Yeah, and I'll and I'll even go further. I mean, I'll go right into secret society documents. I'll go into different religions and use that. But again, I'll bring that back and say, say, see, how does that measure up with what it says in the Bible, along with Yasher, along with Enoch, and, and other books. 
And what we learn is, is in particularly with the Gnostics and with the Freemasons, and of course it's the same group when we talk about secret societies and, and, and Gnostics, so it's, 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 people should not find it surprising when, when uh, they have the same ideas and the same doctrines written down. But what they talk about with, with Cain is he is the first civilizer of the nomads. And they look at people from outside sources that there were other people before Adam and Eve that were on the earth. And he moves over and he becomes king over uh, these, these peoples. And they st- through the help of the fallen angels, they civilize the nomads, the hunters and gatherers of what seemingly they look at as the day six people or in more in their language would be the Sumerians, I think. And so with him becoming king, he is also taking over the knowledge that he was taught by Adam. And in the Masonic records, they teach about the seven sacred sciences that, uh, that Adam was taught. And he passed it on to, of course, Abel and to Cain afterwards. And then, of course, Abel is murdered. And then Adam will pass that on to Seth. And the Sethites will carry on this knowledge that they have uh, in the ways that honor God, that respect God, and in the ways of God, and they particularly use astronomy because they're an agrarian people. Now, on the other hand, Cain is developing this knowledge with his son Enoch in a way that is not going to honor God, is going to disrespect God, not give God credit for anything, and designed to lead people away from God. And as they develop these this, this technology and this knowledge um, in, into greater and greater levels, they create mystical religion, this sun-worshipping religion of Enoch that he's very, very famous for in Eastern religion, Middle Eastern religion, Gnosticism, and the secret societies. And they also develop the Masonic organization. And so Enoch is really their grand patriarch, Enoch, son of Cain. And then when you get into the sons of Lamech, uh, of the uh, Cain line, they have this revitalization of these seven sacred sciences at the time of the birth of the Nephilim, and they take these this knowledge to this great level that probably, according to other sources, would be greater than what we have today. And so this hinting of what's going on in Genesis is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. And this is backed up in so many other different uh, ways. And so when you look at what Cain was doing to bring that back to what you were saying, yes, he did introduce weights and measures and borders and, and commerce. And Josephus was very, very uh, good at recording that as a parallel document to um, the Old Testament. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I've often wondered how the modern narrative of archaeology, you know, overlaps with some of the biblical narrative. But, you know, also, if you look at specifically the Book of Enoch, too, you know, there's uh, watchers uh, by name who provide information, you know, to the the sons of men. And, you know, there's some of that echoed here in Genesis 4 with some of the, you know, the metallurgy, like you mentioned, and some of the things that are discussed here. It goes into more detail in Enoch with you know, cutting of the root and, uh, you know, uh, enchantments and all sorts of things. But, um, you know, it, it seems like there is this, uh, I guess you can call it antichrist spirit as it's identified, you know, in the new Testament, but it's throughout and it goes, you know, it, it starts back in this antediluvian world. Uh, where do you think it all begins? Where do you think the rebellion starts? 
Well, the rebellion starts, in, in my opinion, with the uh, angelic rebellion, in that the rebellion, the, everything that has been happening since the creation of Adam, and what we see playing out is is closely tied to to that rebellion, and when, and what happens throughout this sort of six thousand year narrative that we've been in. Uh, will determine the fate of of the angels, and technically that was determined when uh, Jesus was resurrected. Um, but it's still playing out because there's an ordained time. And when you talk about this this antichrist spirit, yes, the the spirit of the antichrist has has always been there, and it's trying to put, you know, a tyrant king on the throne to enslave humankind to totally rebel against. Uh, God, so that humans will not be raised in the future world above angels, which is why the angels um, are trying to bring humankind down. And so when we look at where the Nephilim come into play in this antediluvian partnership between watchers and fallen angels, which are the seraphim angels, because watchers were the special order of seraphims that were governing the earth at the time, um, a partnership between Nephilim, the descendants of Cain, and the fallen angels as they work together to create this institutionalized religion that's going to lead people away and the development of the knowledge, which is mystery schools and the secret societies, and that these partnerships cross the flood and have continued ever since and want to bring about the end time and are working actively to do it because they want this they want this rendezvous with destiny because they want to uh, have this war with God. Um, they've been deceived. The angels know they can't win. The demons know they can't win. But the people who are deceived by these doctrines believe they can win because that's what they're being told. You know, and I'm glad you brought up the mystery religions and Gnosticism again because, you know, I've been so curious as to why it's... I mean, there's such a popular following. I mean, even people who are traditionally secular atheists, you know, a lot of times I know a, a, a at least a small group of people personally who, you know, are very interested in Gnosticism and things like that. Why do you think it has so much popularity uh, in modern times now? Well, because it's the religion of science. It's the religion of secularism. They just, uh, a lot of the people who aren't initiated and enlightened, they just don't realize it. You know, if you look at Francis Bacon, who is the inspirational founder to the Royal Society, which is the dawning of modern science uh, in this age, and also designed to, you know, develop the sciences and to lead people away from God and not to honor God. Uh, for anything, including creating of anything, um, but to honor the great architect of the universe, which is the god of the Freemasons and the god of Mithraism, and in the uh, same name uh, throughout a number of different ancient religions. Um, what he was talking about in the book that he wrote that inspired the Royal Society, the book was called The New Atlantis. And in The New Atlantis, in the... Uh, this is the age or the new age or the, the, the false millennium age of the, what the new age people like to talk about or Gnostics like to talk about. It's an era where a religion will be working in harmony with science. And this is 
the ancient religion. This is the religion of Atlantis. This is the religion of Enoch. This is the ancient mystical religion because it works in harmony with the sciences um, because that's where its roots are. And so, so go ahead. It's almost like they have a, it's like they have an, an inborn desire for some sort of, you know, spiritual connection. But when science doesn't quite do it, they got this, you know, this little mix they can jump into. Yeah. And, and the more they learn and the higher, and whether it's more powerful, more wealthy, or part of secret societies or more educated, they will become more and more into the secret societies and the Gnostic religions because what they find is is that they have all of the freedoms and the things that they want to do, or at least what they think that they want to do, and none of the restrictions of, of monotheism, and it plays against, um, it plays on the level that uh, they like because these polytheist religions love to develop the sciences. They love to do it because it's going to end up making us like gods, which is part of the religion, and it's going to end up corrupting the world, just as it did in the antediluvian epoch. But it plays to their sense of progress, right, um, it, and, and moving forward, as opposed to they look at monotheism as an evil religion, an evil of repression, a, a religion that will not permit the development of knowledge. And, and again, it's a misnomer, but they've, they've sort of created that sort of culture and message over the millennia. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's a, yeah, it's interesting, too, because it, it goes so deep and it's so, you know, I don't know, there's almost like this coolness about it, especially in the past few years where, you know, you see a, a, a mostly occult symbolism, but Gnosticism, surely, uh, showing up in fashion and showing up in mm -hmm. songs and, and you know, Jay-Z is wearing, uh, I forget exactly what book about, uh, a Gnostic book or uh, some occult book or something. I don't know. He, he put it on his t-shirt line. Catcher in I the mean, Rye just, or something? Wasn't it Catcher in the Rye? I don't know. Maybe I was, maybe I'm. No, no, it, it's some, uh, philosophy book that is, that has, uh, some Gnostic eyes um so anyways i mean it's 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 almost like it's become part of popular culture and you know when you think of something that's supposed to be like some ancient mystery that you know only enlightened people see and then suddenly it's kind of taking over popular culture uh i don't know it's it's, it's highly suspect of course well they they control all aspects of the entertainment and so their symbolism and their genealogies uh, their belief systems and their doctrine, doctrines absolutely permeate. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's movies. It doesn't matter whether it's music. It doesn't matter whether it's literature. It doesn't matter whether it's children's literature or children's shows. They absolutely dominate that with their imagery and they're brainwashing people in preparation for the end time. And so, again, even that people, even if we're not in the end time, and lots of people will make that argument, and I think we're getting closer to the end time for sure, but uh, so if you're a secular and uh, you're being continually bombarded with these messages as what everybody is, um, you're more easily going to accept that as they start giving you these sort of hors d'oeuvres of, of things in terms of, you know, the secrets of life and the secrets of the mysteries, and they just sort of lure them in, in, in that direction, you know. And I would say that, you know, it's akin to, let's say, Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden, where, 
You know, she didn't eat this horrible uh, concoction uh, when she ate from the tree of good and evil. She ate a nice fruit, right? So right. it, was it good. seems very, very tempting. And, but at the end of the day, it's not. Do you think that true practice of Gnosticism could become almost a popular religious, uh, you know, uh, denomination that people could claim that suddenly, you know, a, a large portion of society would actually be practicing Gnosticists or what do you, or do you think that's too far? No, I don't. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. Um, we need to take off, first First thing we need to do is take off the lens of uh, Western society. Uh, we need to understand that most of the world, you know, um, outside of the three major monotheist religions are already worshipping and doing the religion of Gnosticism because it's the same religion. And now, if you look at the Gnostics who have infiltrated the Christians and uh, at all aspects, uh, and if you look at the mysticism that's in the Jewish religion, which is Kabbalism and the Essenes, and if you look at the Sufis, which are the mystical religion of, of Islam, uh, they're working very, very hard to bring down the monotheistic religions and umbrella them under this Gnostic global religion that they're going to bring about in the end time. And I would go to Revelation to give a hint of that, where, you know, we get this image of this beast that has two horns like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. So this is going to um, all but destroy Christianity, uh, take away its fundamental doctrines, um, allegorize and take away the resurrection and the deity of Jesus and reel them back to prophet status as it destroys Christianity, but leave it so that it can be the base to bring in all the other religions. And so this end-time religion will be this umbrella religion. And we see some of this starting to come together today. And you've got, you know, a Jesuit uh, running the... Uh, Catholic Church today, and he's working actively, not only politically, but to bring the religions together. And again, if you want to know what a, a mole is in Catholicism, you've got several different sects, and one of those is the Jesuit sect, and they believe in the uh, seven sacred sciences and the development of it. They have distinctly left-wing policies right from the beginning, and they were formed after the Knights Templar went down to replace that sort of front-edge Gnostic mole that can work and do the inner workings for the uh, Gnostic religions and secret societies uh, within the Church. And going back before you had the Templars and before you had the Jesuits, you have the Cistercian uh, monks, which are the Benedictines and the Augustines, and they've been working this ever since uh, Christianity has started. So this has been a well sort of created infrastructure within the Christian church of that time, and it has also spread to Protestantism. And it's amazing whether it's a Catholic church or it's a Protestant church, how many times you see in, in our churches um, this imagery. You know, sometimes you even see uh, uh, Freemasonry imageries in, in, in the churches. It's absolutely um, gaining in its popularity, and I think they're, you know, they're not there yet, but that's definitely what they're trying to do is, is replace Christianity as we know it 
um, make it into a polytheist religion and where Jesus is just a prophet like Muhammad, like Buddha, like Zoroaster, like Hermes, which is another big patriarch uh, in, in Gnosticism. Um, and umbrella all religions that can sort of work in sort of different denominations but have a similar belief that over overshadows all of them. Yeah, I think the uh, yeah. mystery religions have always been sort of the you know, the undergirding spirituality throughout, you know, and you can call, again, you mentioned all of it, not all of it, but a lot of it, you know, the different forms, Gnosticism in, in its, you know, sort of the first century form, you have Kabbalah, you have, you know, all these different kinds of, uh, of religions that all seem to share this mystery element. So I saw that really early on and I noticed that as the religion also of, you know, what we call the new world order. And if you, really think about the cultural conditioning, you know, things like Tomorrowland and Burning Man and these sorts of events that seem, you know, to the youth culture, it's kind of like this positive thing, like, oh, we're getting together. It's about oneness. It's about all this, you know, love and spirituality and all this stuff. But in reality, they're being conditioned and being taught the same mystery religion spirituality and and they're accepting it. You know, th that sort of crowd accepts it and uh, rejects Christ. And a lot of them actually uh, especially in America here, grew up in the church, you know, and they're actively rejecting it in a way that is not so much uh, the fault of the, of these kids. It's more the fault of, I think the church, you know, failing to inform the young people of what the differences are, what the nuances are uh, between some of these Gnostic thinking, uh, you know, philosophies with the true biblical worldview, because what I find in researching some of this stuff. And I think we've researched, uh, well, you've probably done a lot more with putting together a book, but um, with putting together a couple documentaries on similar topics and, and sort of seeing the thread, uh, I found it that when you look into Gnostic or, or mystery religious documents, uh, like you mentioned at the beginning of the show here, you have to sort of take parts of it and leave other parts. And it's always kind of hard because you, you can take something and say, okay, this aligns with scripture. So, you know, th this is something that we can consider, uh, whereas this this other part just completely is, uh, you know, diametrically opposed to the biblical account. Um, how do you sort of navigate through that? What, what's your recommendation for people that want to look into this stuff? Well, first of all, be, be very, very careful, and um, it's going to test your faith. I mean, when I started to read all the Gnostic Gospels I could get my hands on to, to do the research for the book, and there's, it's an unbelievable number of Gospels that are out there uh, that are Gnostic. You know, a lot of them, they sound so good and so fine, and then all of a sudden, whack, you get whacked in the forehead. But you have to be careful because it's seducing you in. Um, but all it did, once I learned to look for the markers and stuff, it just it really strengthened my faith more. But somebody has to be very, very sound in their own biblical doctrine to not get deceived because they make some they make some good arguments and it sounds plausible and the trouble is though is is it's not it's it's not necessarily uh you know what it's saying in their gospels that you have to be so very very careful with it is but where i'm going with that point is is that it's the result of what those religions produce. It produces nothing but chaos and havoc in 6,000 years of destitute, you know, as our, as our legacy. You know, uh, if we didn't have the, the, the mystery religions, things would be 
significantly different, um, I suppose, if we were ruled by Jesus. But it, again, I mean, if, if, if we didn't have um, Jesus ruling over us, I'm sure we would find a way to make it just as bad. But it's the thing that people have to remember is is that nothing but violence and evil comes as a result of what that is being taught. There is there is no light at that end of the tunnel. They are not the children of light that they say they are. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and just real briefly, just to touch back real quick, uh, uh, the book Basil was in the dust of this planet uh, that Jay Z was um, sporting there in his uh, yes on his jacket. That's the one. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> uh, now, when you talk about these the secret societies and and all this, and and you know we we've traced it, we've talked about it plenty on this show, but there's this added element to your uh, sort of narrative that you put together in the Genesis Six conspiracy, uh, how secret societies and the descendants of giants plan to enslave humankind. That aspect of descendants of giants. Um, uh, tell us about that a little bit, because, uh, you know, there's different forms of thought there. You know, there's an, an idea that they were wiped out uh, in the Old Testament. That was part of, um, you know, Yahweh's mission for Israel to uh, not only get to the promised land, but part of it was to eliminate some of those tribes that existed, you know, the the Zamzumim, the Emim, and, and we can get into some of that. But where, where does the giants actually come into this picture? So in the Antediluvian Epoch, and it's a very similar story after the Flood as well, they usurp the kingships. So this is the muscle, this is the dynastic kingships. And, of course, they partnered with the mystical religions and the secret societies. And they do so again after the Flood, only this time um, these dynastic kingships spawn more kingships. And so right after the flood, you have the major ones after after Babel. You have Nimrod marrying into the Mesopotamian uh, kingships. You have the Mitanni dynasty, you have the Malachite dynasty, of the Egyptian dynasty. The Hittites, not quite as pure, but um, still one of these dynasties. And these are the dynasties that spread around the world. And who knows, there may have even been other uh, bloodlines with kingships uh, around the world, but they usurp the kingships after the flood and they keep these bloodlines intact. They've been tracking their uh, genealogies all the way back to the antediluvian epoch, and they believe they have these genealogies. And they will present these genealogies in the end time. And so when we talk about what does that mean going forward, these are the most richest, noblest, powerful people throughout the history who ran the various kingships and the various empires and survive uh, in the royal families and other families around the world today that are still working in. It's the true and noble bloodlines that control the mystical religions and they control the secret societies today. So the higher you move up in these secret societies, the more pure blood your blood has to be. You know, if you're going to join the Freemasonic organization, you have to be invited. But you may not be a pure blood or a noble bloodline or bloodlines of the of, of the giants at that level, there's going to be a mixture. But by the time you get to a depth level, either the 33rd degree of the Scottish Rite or the third degree of the York Rite, you're going to become an adept and illuminated. And there from there, that's 
where they start to draft people into the Rosicrucians. But now um, you're starting to mix with more of the purebloods and people on the rise in Freemasonry will have to have noble bloodlines to uh, get into the Rosicrucian level. And the Rosicrucians are represented very, very significantly with the purebloods, even though there's still more organizations above them in this hierarchy. So this bloodline concept and the purity of that bloodline and who's really controlling the strings of these other organizations is significant to understand. And it's not a matter whether or not a Christian believes that these bloodlines um, are real. It's what they believe, and it's what they're doing with this information. And what exactly are they doing with this information? Well, because they believe they are ennobled, um, they don't really have a fondness for the average mundane human being. And that's why in their future world, we're going to be slaughtered en masse. And we're not going to be the ones that they want to evolve into gods and in, into this new age. So what they're trying to do is, is they're trying to create the end time. As I said, they want to bring on this rebellion. So they need to do that. They need to get everybody into one universal religion and one world government so that they can evolve into gods. And that's where this religious aspect sort of comes back into it again. That is that sort of harmonic conversion where they, they think that we're going to vibrate into gods. But you have to have either the bloodline or the gene of Isis or a thousand points of light, which is uh, what they like to talk about when they're uh, talking about the new world order. And that's what the thousand points of light is, is a spark of the divine that they call it, or this, this marker that takes you back to the, uh, the Nephilim bloodlines. And so what they're trying to do is, is create the scenario that they can bring on the end time, have the universal religion, and introduce their false messiah, who they will have and present the pedigree throughout the ages that he descends back to the fallen angels. Now, we, we hear a lot, you know, obviously we talk a lot on this show about, uh, you know, we, we don't necessarily try not to set any dates or anything, but talk about the end times coming closer and closer is a pretty consistent topic. I mean, do you have any uh, idea or new information or, or a secret in to the, uh, the, the plans of the elite on when exactly they may be trying to do this? I mean, allegedly they've been trying to do it for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. They would bring it on tomorrow if they could. Um, now, there's other writings that say they do have a specific date. Um, but they would take it uh, at any point in time, and they will even take the ordained times um, because they want this rendezvous. And, of course, they won't be permitted until the restrainer is removed. So they would move on it today if they could, and they would, they would move, you know, sort of heaven and earth to speak to, to make that happen. But it's not easy, and they're, 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 they are being frustrated, and it never moves quite as fast as they would like it to move. So... Uh, I think so impatient. They're so impatient. Yeah, but, you know, bringing about a world religion and world government's not so easy. And is, you know, some of the pretenders in the past, let's say like a Hitler or Napoleon or uh, some of the famous or Alexander, other people in history, you can't do it through war. It has to be assembled and then you just put your guy on, on that throne. 
Now, here's something I've been wondering, and maybe you can speak to this, or maybe it's just a mystery for the ages. Uh, you know, I was thinking the other day, if, if the majority of the world's leaders, or at least a significant portion of the most powerful ones, are all in uh, on the plan, what's taking them so long? Can't they just all agree that they now we have now we have a one world government it's not like they really count our opinion anyways <laughs> yeah they they don't seem to uh get their act totally together to to make that happen as as what one might think well they have different they have different agendas and not every country today you know is run by um you know somebody that has is on the same page or or necessarily a royal bloodline so they you know and even when it does come together, it's going to be a mixture, just as it says in Daniel, um, that it's going to be iron and clay. I mean, it, it, it doesn't mix that well, right? It's really hard to bring that together. Um, so, you know, uh, I think that's what's, you know, the, the big issue is just holding it back. And that's why they thought they had to do it through force in the past. And this approach is going to be to assemble it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh one of the things that I, I find fascinating that you're bringing up is, you know, this idea of bloodlines. And to me, uh, well, let's there, there have been theories. Uh, Doug Hamp was one of the ones that presented this theory that, oh boy, I'm kind of losing my train of thought here. But in essence, what I'm asking about, what I'm curious about is this idea of, you know, if there is a descending race, and I know that they've tried to keep it within sort of the inner circles, right? They keep these bloodlines pure or whatever, but inevitably they're going to get out. They're going to, you know, have kids or whatever with people, the normies, so to call it, so, so called or whatever, the muggles, the muggles. Um, <laughs> so does that mean the human population has, uh, you know, Nephilim genetics in them? Oh, I think it's quite wi quite widely spread. Um, in, in very much diluted manners. Um, you just, do I have Nephilim blood in me? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know whether you do or you don't. Oh, uh, gosh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it happened, um, you know, a long time ago, and they did interbreed. And as, as that spreads through over the generations, I think there's a lot of people out there that probably have a touch of Nephilim DNA in there. But, you know, that's kind of irrelevant whether they do or they don't. It's God's not going to judge us uh, and, and grant us grace based on what our physical attributes were that we were born into this world. It's a spiritual question in terms of who we believe and who we follow and do we recognize Jesus and what's in our heart and what do we do? That's what's going to be judged on, not your physical nature. So, um, which again is totally opposite to what the Gnostics believe, right? They're going to try and become gods on this earth, right? That's, that's the promise of Eden. That's what they're going to try and do. That's, you know, it's so fascinating because, well, p part of what I was going to say that I remember now uh, with Doug Hamp's theory and, you know, some others have posed the same theory, which is that, you know, there's a reason why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Uh, you know, he, he couldn't have that fallen DNA or fallen sort of sin code from Adam. You know, he had to usurp that. And so there's, you know, that's partly why he had to be born of a virgin. That, that sort of thinking is kind of interesting when you think about if this Nephilim DNA is spread throughout humanity. Uh, but also when, when you bring up this idea of, you know, it's more about what you believe it's, it's our spiritual foundation. Now, you know, we've had conversations on this show with uh, people who are pro transhumanist who say, 
you know, if, if, if it's in God's will, then sure, change your genetics to have kangaroo legs so you can, you know, bring Bibles into the you know, heart of Africa or something, right? That was sort of I the example. I still think that's a ministry, a viable ministry. <laughs> well, yeah. that, that, that was sort of the, the, the example that we, that we had. So, so you're saying, you know, let's say somebody, uh, you know, decides to you know, upgrade their genetics as uh, transhumanists and post-human dreamers are suggesting is sort of the next phase of human evolution which ties directly into this whole Gnostic apotheosis, you know, uh, philosophy. Uh, so let's say somebody does that and they start changing themselves and they start altering and, and things, you know, they develop the sight of eagles and, you know, whatever they, they become less human or, or more, uh, or more superhuman, whatever you want to call it. Do you think that there's, you know, a shred of humanity that is left in them that they can be saved? Or do you think that there is a line that, you know, eventually they cross where they can no longer be saved or what sort of your thoughts, Thoughts there. If, well, uh, I think what happens is that there's a line they cross where they don't want to be saved, just as oh, the Nephilim uh, continued in their rebellion in the uh, antediluvian epoch. And the reason why I say say that is is because the Nephilim being created was a violation against creation, against the laws of creation for the physical world, where you know the spirit of heaven is not going to dwell in the physical world and. Uh, have gods in this physical world. And so anytime you uh, start uh, violating the laws of creation, you, I think you cross that as opposed to being born into this world and if there's some uh, Nephilim DNA. That, these are two different concepts here. And so when we talk about transhumanism or any type of uh, road going down that way to create gods on earth, that's a violation against creation because you're trying to create immortality uh, on this earth. And God moved at the time just after the giants were created to limit life on earth to 120 years. There have been people, I've heard reports of people who believe they have Nephilim, you know, genetics. And so they can't be saved. And, um, you know, that's sort of a sad thing to hear when people, for whatever kind of uh, trauma or uh, even mind control that they might be under, um, some of these folks that have been through some pretty horrific things, uh, you know, they, they come out believing that they're alien genetics or Nephilim genetics or whatever it is. And they say, Hey, I can't be saved. And they, and they have this sort of, uh, doom on their minds, you know? So it's an interesting take that you have there to, uh, to distinguish the differences. Yeah. And I think if, you know, maybe they, maybe their, their body is more corrupt and it's a, it's a greater challenge, but we all have sin. We all live in this, this corrupted, sinful world. We're all influenced by the sin of this world from our physical nature. But we have the ability to choose to work within our spirit and work within the spirit of God to try and discipline our physical uh, desires. And we all fail, but because it's now comes down to who and what we believe we're going we're going to receive grace because we believe by faith in that promise sure yeah and uh you know when we talk about the antichrist because you brought him up a little bit you know uh, briefly i tend to lean towards what chris white has talked about in his book false christ uh will the antichrist claim to be the jewish messiah he ties a lot of scriptures together to present this case but in terms of you know, application of a Jewish Messiah, especially now in terms of, you know, the mystical Judaism being the main form of Judaism in a sense. Uh, and to have to prove uh, that Davidic bloodline in a sense, um, 
it's part of his theory that that there will be a way that this antichrist will be able to prove that he is deity somehow uh by being related to you know like a king david or solomon have you had the, have you looked at this approach of uh the antichrist potentially being the fulfillment or or presenting himself as the uh jewish messiah as they're as they're long waited for Yes, and I'll detail a lot of that in, in, in my book. So uh, not only will he present himself as a false messiah, uh, but also Antichrist. Anti is also a replacement, so he's going to be a replacement for Christ. And that's one of the reasons why they have to destroy Jesus down to prophet status, so that uh, the pedigree uh, of the Antichrist can be presented, because there's another mingling of bloodlines in here that they've done. And so when they... When you're in the Gnostic belief, and this is um, goes right in into the encoded allegories of the the King Arthur Grails, King Arthur and the Holy Grail, um, they believe that in the Gnostic uh, Christian sect uh, that Jesus did not uh, die on the cross and was not resurrected to heaven. They believe that uh, Jesus was taken down from the cross before. He died and was nursed, nursed back to health and produced uh, three children, three male children, and possibly some more with Mary Magdalene afterwards. And the third one, the name of Josephes, is, is the one that carries on this bloodline that married into the, uh, the Grail kingships that are in the Holy Grail, and it crosses over uh, to the Mer- Merovingian bloodline, which uh, goes down through the Plantagenet dynasty and through the Stuart dynasty, and that they have as part of this pedigree the Davidic bloodline. They also believe that they have the Benjamite bloodline in that mix as well, uh, that's married in and, and infused in uh, at the Merovingian intersection as well through Mary Magdalene and. Uh, a few other avenues that take them back to King Saul. So not only are they covering off the two kingships of of uh, of Israel, but also the Nephilim uh, pedigree as well. So this pedigree that they're going to present as the replacement Christ will have this relationship back as a Jewish Messiah. Wow, that's really interesting. <laughs> that's, that's really cool that you tied all those things together. Uh, yeah, you know, I've always sensed that there is, uh, you know, obviously there's a bigger narrative um, that people aren't considering. And I think, you know, the idea of having new bodies, right, uh, being one of the big hopes we have as Christians, the First Corinthians 15 passage where it talks about heavenly bodies and how we're going to have this glorified body that we can dwell with God. You know, that doctrine would make so much sense. And the church even talks about it, but they don't really put it in the proper context, you know. Where, you know, if we understand that we are, you know, corrupt and we are fallen, that sort of restoration makes a lot more sense. And then, you know, this Antichrist figure who's supposed to represent everything that is, you know, almost you can call anti-human. There have been theories, uh, Peter Goodgame came up with a theory that uh, the Antichrist figure will be Nimrod, you know, the the literal resurrection of Nimrod. And uh, Nimrod being obviously a very important figure post-flood, being the guy who built the Tower of Babel and all this stuff. where has uh, your research brought you uh, in terms of Nimrod? Where where does he fit into your narrative? Yeah, and let me before I get into Nimrod because that's uh, that's really really good. And I think if I'm going to talk about bloodlines from a biblical perspective, I need to have um, a, a little bit of uh, 
scripture to, to sort of back up that speculation. And uh, so I would, first of all, go to uh, Genesis 3, where you have the offspring of the serpent um, that's going to be at odds with the offspring of Eve throughout our uh, whole... I know this really sucks, but my recorder stopped working briefly while our guest, Gary Wayne, was explaining the setup of where he was going. Uh, one of the scriptures that he mentioned while the recorder was turned off was Psalm 21, verse 10, where God is talking about his judgment, the wrath of God. And it says, you will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. And so that was part of his scriptural support for looking into this. And then he gets into the genealogy of Genesis 10 leading into the Tower of Babel. And that's where we pick it up with Gary Wayne before the flood and after the flood. So we have to look at all of his life as to what that would mean, and hence we have uh, the, the Tower of Babel story. And so Nimrod, he, uh, he partners with Hermes at Babel to uh, redevelop the seven sacred sciences that I talked about earlier because he finds, Hermes finds these two pillars, the two pillars of Freemasonry that they call Joaz and, uh, or Boaz and Joachim. And these two pillars had seven sacred sciences on it and the location of the 36,525 books of nine vaults stacked on one each other that were buried under the pyramids according to Masonic uh, history and brings this information back to Nimrod and the outcome is, is they're going to build Babel and the Tower of Babel and of course rebel against God. And so Nimrod is this antichrist type figure because he has universal sway He's acting like a, like a gibberim, like a tyrant, like a mighty warrior, like a mighty hunter, which he's described as, and he imposes this universal religion because the religion comes with it at Babylon, and he's got total sway, at least over the Sethites. And he is very much a role model for the, uh, the end-time uh, Antichrist, and I actually call the end-time Antichrist the new Nimrod. And so a lot of people do believe that um, Nimrod is going to be the one that it, it possesses, I guess, the, uh, the Antichrist, because uh, we, we know that uh, the uh, Antichrist comes up out of the abyss, as it says in Revelations, and that he once was, uh, now is not, but will be again. Um, I'm not convinced that it's Nimrod, but it's certainly going to be a Nimrod-type figure. Um, it could be uh, a demon that could possess, so one of the Nephilim, or it could be, um, and more likely, is Azazel, um, who is also known as the destroyer of the Antediluvian Epoch. And if you want to know more about Azazel, obviously read the books of Enoch. Um, but he is uh, likely uh, Apollyon and a bad. So I think there's a connection there. I'm not convinced that it's Nimrod, but I do believe it's going to be uh, a combination of, uh, of what happened uh, with the fallen angels and with the demons, and I do believe there's going to be a bloodline um, of the physical human that gets possessed. But the human that's going to be Antichrist is going to be possessed, I think. Yeah, there seems to be a combination, perhaps, of uh, 
some sort of perhaps Nephilim, even genetics being discovered or, you know, added to, or something to that effect where, you know, I mean, we, we've heard almost 15 years ago, they found the tomb of Gilgamesh, right. And we didn't really hear too much after that. Um, and that sort of thing could lead to in laboratories, some sort of experiment. And once they have the serum, you know, they're ready to, uh, plug it into the the chosen one or whatever whatever situation's yeah. going on there. Yeah, and then and there's also they have kangaroo legs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um and uh, it's interesting to note that the Freemasons uh also do not agree that uh, Nimrod was a giant. Um and I think anybody that's listed in the table of nations and uh, we can see the descendancy down through Ham and Cush um that that was not a Nephilim. The, the people that are in the Old Testament after the flood, they don't have a genealogy that goes back to the Table of Nations in First Chronicles and Genesis. And I'm talking about like Rapha, who's the father of the Rephaim, or Arba, the father of uh, the Anakim, uh, and the, the Zamzazim that you were talking about, the Emin and the Azim and the Avim, none of these people go back to the Table of Nations. These are these are Nephilim that are unaccounted for hmm. after the Flood. That's interesting. Uh, I might have heard something contrary to that, um, and and this, it's not a theory that I uh, that I buy actually, but um, I believe it was Rob Skiba that presented uh, a theory uh, a few years ago that suggested that. Uh, Ham, or perhaps Ham's wife, was the one that, um, you know, might have carried Nephilim DNA onto the Ark or something like that, because the lineage of Ham is the one that produces Nimrod, and then, uh, he, you know, the argument goes that it produces all the, uh, you know, the Nephilim tribes, including Canaan. But I think, I think you're right specifically though with Rapha, some of those other names. I don't know that there could be a direct uh, connection back to uh, the the descendants of Noah. No, there isn't. Just as Seir comes in uh, for the descendants of uh, Esau as uh, the chiefs of Edom, then it comes out of nowhere. And I know some people try to take that back to half of the lineage of uh, Canaan. Uh, and But that's the Heth is the father of the Hittites, is not the father of the Horites or the Amalekites. And so, yeah, and uh, Rob does uh, present a very good theory. There's only three ways that giants can arrive after the flood. Uh, one is is either uh, they're on the ark somehow, some way, which Rob presents, where it was the wives that weren't pure and somehow carried the DNA. And I guess if that's the case, somehow then they carried the DNA for uh, the other races. Um, certainly the Gnostics believe a little bit differently than it wasn't uh, that they were carrying the DNA. They actually believe, and depending on which Gnostic gospel you're talking about, is, is Ham was a giant, or Ham and Japheth was a giant, or all three sons were a giant, or everybody on the boat was, was a giant. They've got many different gospels on that. But um, that's one way. Somehow on the flood, and also in uh, Jewish legends, they have um, Og actually hanging on to uh, the ark and surviving the flood. And of course, he's the last of the Raphaites, as he's called in Deuteronomy and in, in Numbers, except that he can't because the Raphaites or their Raphaim are all throughout the covenant land, and actually Goliath is. It descends back to the Raphaim as well, and I'll show that in the book as well. So if he's the last of the Raphaites, that means um, he must have survived the flood, or the Bible's in contradiction, and I never believe the Bible is in contradiction. 
Right. And I just like, briefly before you jump in, Basil, uh, we present five possible theories in our new book, uh, Revising Reality. Go ahead, Basil. I would like to present my own theory. <laughs> yeah. I have, my I have two more possibilities, but go ahead. <laughs> All right. I'll do, I'll do mine first because it might totally trump yours and then uh, you'll, I don't want to embarrass you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'd like to present that. Uh, maybe a, a, a little group of Nephilim built their own little raft and uh, piled on about 10 or 12 Nephilim, and they were just kind of paddling around. Well, that is um, one of the, that's really the other uh, one of the two that I'm going to present. One is um, that they survived the flood somehow on another ark or climbed to a mountain or whatever, because if you go around the world, they have flood stories on every continent, on every culture, just as they have pyramids, just have to have dragons, just have to have serpents, just as they have giants. And they have giant uh, survival stories on arcs. And so the two classics that most people will be aware of, and um, I'll talk about it um, after the Greek one, because the Sumerian one actually leads into the third possibility. Um, so if you go to the Greek uh, mythology, you have what they call the uh, Greek Noah between um, Deucalion and Pyrrha. Well, it looks like it's the same story, except that that's all on the sort of macro level. But when you get into the detail, you learn that Deucalion is the son of Prometheus. And in Greek mythology, there are two Prometheus. One's a god and one's a titan. And titan are the same as Nephilim, just as Anunnaki are, just as the Diatria are, the Aswans, and all the different names for giants around the world. They are the same um, beings that are being talked about. They just have recorded them in polytheist records. And so Deucalion then, well, it doesn't matter whether he's son of the god or he's son of the titan. Uh, the demigod, he's still Nephilim, right? And then Pyrrha has several different names depending on which translation and whether or not you get in the Gnostic records. And Norea is another one of those combinations. And Norea, according to the Gnostics, has many differentiations and variations, but etymology goes back to Nama. And who is Nama? Nama is one of the daughters of Lamech, of the descendant of of Cain, and she is notorious for um, marrying uh, giants in the occultic records. And in fact, um, she uh, marries a uh, fallen angel by the name of Samael, who produces uh, another Nephilim son called Samael and a twin called uh, Amalek, which connects into the Malachites of Seir. And so if we look at the Greek one, this is, a, this is a story of the survival of giants. It's not the biblical Noah story. So now if we go over to the epic of Gilgamesh, we have Gilgamesh, who is recorded in uh, some of the occultic uh, uh, books of Enoch uh, as being one of the giants that Enoch the evil is talking to about the flood that's coming and they can't prevent it. And somehow this Gilgamesh survives the flood. I think he's, uh, he's part of the family of Epneptitian or Zayazudra, depending on which translation you want to talk about, because in the Epic of Gilgamesh story, that is the Noah, Epneptitian, and he takes all of his family with him. But backing up a step, we understand in the preamble that 
Gilgamesh is a demigod, two-thirds god and one-third human. And he's a very violent, nasty individual that the gods then go in and they create after the flood Anakedon or Anakedu, depending on the translation that you want to use. And so you have a second incursion going on here. And so uh, we have a Nephilim talking to a Nephilim created after the flood in the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, and then we find out Atnaptitian is the archetypical Nephilim or Anunnaki who is going to take his family to repopulate the earth afterwards and, and usurp kingships again because he was, he was a king before the flood, and it actually says that in the Sumerian records. So again, you have... A story of survival of giants that looks like the Noah story on the macro level, but the devil is in the details. So I think there's three sort of overarching possibilities. Somehow on the flood, which I'm not quite uh, leaning towards as much, although I recognize it as a possibility. They survive somehow some other way on an ark. Uh, or walking to a mountain, or as the Gnostics have another version of Amaka Seth, where he's taken off planet uh, into a cloud and saved, and you have a second uh, impassioned violation after the flood. But by different fallen angels, because the ones before the flood have already been put into the abyss for their violations against creation. So one would presume if that happened, then they were also to be put back in the abyss. And then if you look at where uh, the Nephilim were created in Enoch to talk about Mount Hermon, and I think that's accurate in the research that I have. And if you bring this back to Nimrod and what was going back at Babel, and you break down what the word Babel means, not in Hebrew, because that goes back to the confusion of languages, but after Babel, Nimrod goes to Chaldea, which produces the Akkadians thereafter. So Babel in the Akkadian language stands for Bab, which is a gateway of the a gateway or a gateway of the gods, because El stands for for God. So in their meaning, they ha- they were having a gateway to the god, and I think they're trying to bring angels back to recreate uh, Nephilim after the flood. So second incursion is is the third possibility. Yeah, it seems to tie together some different things there, and there's you know uh, less anecdotal ev- evidence to uh, fill the gap with the other uh, theory here. But uh, basically, in essence, um, the idea is that uh, some technology or some technological means uh, to you know change genetics or whatever it may be to maybe summon some of these fallen angels uh, remained either through the you know through tablets or something that was brought on the ark, or you know perhaps just rediscoveries you know after. Uh, the flood subsided, there are probably a lot of dead giants lying around and probably some ancient technology lying around. Uh, you know, it's possible that they, you know, started to bring things back together to uh, rebuild. And in that process, they were able to, you know, reconstruct some of the ancient technologies. And perhaps that was part of Nimrod's, um, you know, plan to reach heaven. And that's why God had to stop it because, you know, he uh, put an end to it with the flood and he couldn't have this influx of, uh, you know, fallen entities to come back and do what they did so, the first time. So, so here's 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 another connection for you on that because you're, you're definitely uh, I think on on the right path. Um, and so, uh, Nimrod is considered the first grand master of masonry after the flood. He is the one who wrote their constitution after the flood. It was reformed later at Heliopolis by Tutmosis the third, um, but he writes the first one that is used for. Oh, you know, 
something like 1,500 years. And the tower, and tower in the ancient world uh, is the same as ziggurat and pyramid. And so the city and the tower were the first representation of this rediscovered uh, knowledge and technology um, that they were utilizing. And they were developing this, I think, this, this knowledge at a very, very quick pace. And we get a hint of that in the Bible story where it says, and I'll just paraphrase that, um, where uh, working as one people under one language, there's nothing that they set out to do will be, you know, prevented them from doing. I think this is, again, that reflection of that rediscovery of that knowledge that corrupted the antediluvian world that created all sorts of things that we're seeing today, as you were talking about with transhumanism or changing plant um, uh, genomes or uh, crossbreeding uh, and creating these really strange beings in the uh, in the antediluvian world, whether it's a Pegasus or a Cyclops or a Centaur, and on and on and on and on and on. And I think that's what, one of the things that we're seeing in the end time here. That is another parallel. So and but understanding that these secret societies link themselves back to the same stories as what's in the Bible is really, really important. And what they're planning to do is the same thing what the Bible predicts. Even with the ten empires of the end time in Atlantis, in the Ant- and this is their belief system that, and that's why I referenced Bacon earlier for the. Uh, the new Atlantis, is Atlantis wasn't just this one island. It was a nation of, an empire of ten nations. And Poseidon had five sets of twins that were kings over these um, nations. And they were trying to take the whole world over through force. Uh, They were checked by the Athenians, according to Plato, in his um, um, recording of what happened in Atlantis. But the point is, is, this was the golden age that they're trying to bring now under an Atlantean government with 10 nations. And in the late 60s, a very specific organization was created called the Club of Rome. And their job was to create world government. That's what they work on and create cattle herd topics that trends that go across borders to cattle herd people to go to uh, world government. But they have set up, whether or not it's the final look or not, but in terms of the eternal makeup, but they have divided the world up into 10 sections. So you can call them trading blocks, economic zones, spheres of influence, groups of nations or not, but they're trying to create a new Atlantis with a 10-nation empire just as what's predicted in Daniel and Revelations. Is this how the Hunger Games starts? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I volunteer as tribute. No, I mean that's that's very interesting. Now the the Club of Rome that that's one of the uh, at least as far as our show is concerned. You know we've we've touched upon oh my goodness dozens of these secret societies. Oh, there's and, so many. Yeah, and the Club of Rome. You know, I think if I count correctly, we've only really touched upon a couple of times. Um, I mean, so you're saying their whole purpose was for the uh, splitting up of the world, I guess, into yeah. different districts, as it were. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, and yeah, and they're working very actively to bring through uh, global free trade. That's why you have the, you know, like NAFTA and the EEC and right. um, all that's part of it to, to restructure that. You hear them talking about spheres of influence. So you're going to have a major dominant sort of player in one of these 10 empires that's going to have this sphere of influence. Um, and each of them will send a representative, which is one of the ten kings of the uh, of the end time, to to this world government. And so they've also created. So they're actively working on the political side of that, and they're heavily influenced with uh, Rosicrucians, and are also working with uh, the uh, Vatican uh, on the religious side, because the Rosicrucians they handle a lot of the uh, of the religious aspects. So there's a lot of Rosicrucians, and Rosicrucians are very heavily weighted into the purebloods uh, in, in, in that organization. So you can see where this crosses over and how they're trying to bring about on a parallel basis uh, right. the universal religion and the uh, world government at the same time. Yeah. Plus, they've create, they created at that time, and they've been very successful with their propaganda. Uh, at that time, they created... Arguments of peak oil, they created environmental issues, they created global warming and overpopulation and a few other ones that they've been um, funding and feeding to scare people into wanting or being prepared to accept a world government at some point in time because those issues, they transcend borders and it helps bring nationalism down. Right. Now, I'm curious, is, you know, a lot of times we can find these groups sort of on the record, uh, you know, yep. either with the U.N. or whatever, EU or, you know, the, the, these yep. sorts of uh, sketchy organizations. Is there any official documentation of the Club of Rome sort of having, a, having their fingers in the pie? Well, yeah. I mean, they, they've, they come out and say it. I know documented in the book. Right. Um, you know, okay, so it's, uh, it's I, I, I'm, you know, and I'm from from Canada, and um, in the '60s when this was created, Pierre Trudeau, who was our prime minister, was one of those members and was meeting uh, to get this thing up and running. I mean, it's not unknown knowledge. That sounds official enough for me. Yep. <laughs> you know, there's another document that I was trying to pull up as you guys were talking here, and I and I was looking at it just a few days ago, and it's um. I think it's an executive order that Obama signed in 2010, I believe. And it literally assigns 10 like leaders or sort of a, I guess influencers or something that, that run pretty much the, the, the sort of corporate structures or I can't remember the exact <laughs> details, but it was really interesting that he would have this 10 uh, member council member system, which goes to show that they know a lot of this stuff, right? They, they kind of have, they set their patterns of government based on some of these things, but, um, and obviously, you know, to look into who those 10 are and how, you know, if, if things just swiftly move into the UN under UN control, which everything seems to be moving into, uh, that sort of thing can easily, um, you know, reestablish, you know, the 10 Kings or 10 regions kind of thing that, that we've been talking about. And, and look for the European community to split into two, one dominated by Germany and the other one dominated by England and France. And I think that's part of what we're seeing with this Brexit thing. Brexit. Yeah, we can get into all kinds of uh, of current stuff. And, you know, that that's another thing that tying it back to the Tower of Babel, you know, just for a moment, that passage is really so fascinating to me because uh, it was Genesis 11. I think it was verse, yeah, verse 6. 
the second half in the King James, it says here, now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do, which is really fascinating when we think about where we are today in society. We are in this age of, you know, the human imagination coming to life with technology and the arts and all kinds of stuff. And, and what's fascinating is right after God says, you know, we can't have this at this time, he confuses the languages. And one of the big things that's being reversed through Google Translate and, you know, the technology that we have is the world is able to communicate again as one. <laughs> well, you know, it's really interesting. Those re- real-time uh, uh, voice Robot translation things, yeah. earbuds. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, really... Pilot. Nice plug. There's, yeah, I was gonna not, say, there's some buzz marketing for pilot. Yeah, we're we're not sponsored, by the way. Good job, Basil. Some free. Uh... Don't worry, they only have Spanish and Italian. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there you have it. There's technologies there that seem to be reversing everything that the Tower of Babel established, and that what that's what really makes me think that we're living in some fascinating times. And it's um, accurate to what Jesus said in Matthew 24 that we will, you know. The, the, as it were in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. But that the days of Noah being, you know, the Tower of Babel, I, I believe someone did the math that Noah could have been alive at that point as well. Yeah, so Babel was built uh, uh, and destroyed within 120 years of the flood. So I think they started building okay, it go. around year 70, and by year 120 or so it was destroyed. Okay, so Noah lived, what, 300 years after the flood? 350. 350, so he definitely was around. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And uh, again, goes to show the Bible is true. And, uh, you know, I wish the church would wake up to that. You know, it's such a simple sort of one-to-one ratio kind of thing, you know? It would be nice, wouldn't it? It would. <laughs> it's a good it's a good, it's a good. start, at least. All right. So, so if nobody minds, I have a question that I don't think we would be able to get through a, uh, a Canary Cry episode uh, without mentioning, Uh-oh. do you uh, do any investigation or at least alluding to the UFO phenomenon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I think the uh, UFO phenomena is going to be uh, part of the end time deception. Uh, and I think it's, you know, and if, again, just look at anything that you see in science fiction and what happens when we find out we're not alone in the universe. We, we have a world government and then all of a sudden we'll, uh, any type of religion that is in science fiction, it's an Eastern religion, which is Gnosticism. So I think that this is a deception that's going to be coming. Uh, and I know most people will look at uh, the aliens just from a limited perspective or too narrow of a perspective. I think it, it is demonic, and I think it is fallen angels, but I think it's greater than that. I think that... Um, these beings that we see in this alien mythos are beings that are very, very similar to what uh, is talked about in so much of prehistory and in mythologies. And so, you know, when we look at uh, the fairy uh, mythology and the fairy mythos, I mean, it has many different dynamics to it, including an allegory into the bloodlines of the the female uh, bloodlines of the Nephilim, as opposed to the dragon bloodlines, which is the male bloodline. Um, but there are several different types of uh, fairies, and I'm going to connect this into uh, this the alien phenomena here in a second, Ooh. so just bear with me. And so you have um, in the fairy uh, uh, 
mythos, you have this proud angel that uh, came from the planets that rebelled against God, and he was trying to set up, um, you know, a realm separate from God to be like God. So very much similar to uh, uh, the Satan uh, and Lucifer uh, rebellion of the fallen angels. And then you have the second classification of fairies, and these are the these are the opalescent shining beings. These are the uh, uh, the fairies with the uh, dragon faces. Um, so you have uh, them intermarrying uh, you, with human females again in the fairy mythology, and particularly this comes out with the Tuatha Danon in uh, Ireland, who were the fairy people and the fairy folk, uh, and were also known as giants and connected to the, the same Nephilim um, uh, in the occultic world as they take their history back. So you have now you have a Nephilim and you have the fallen angels, so a very similar story that's going on. This is prehistory. Then you have the daemons, which are the, the bodiless spirits or the spirit realm of the uh, fairies, which is the same thing as the spirits of the original Nephilim whose bodies died and they weren't able to go to sleep and they weren't um, permitted to go to heaven. So uh, those are the demons. And then you have... Uh, a group called the Elementals. And the Elementals are broken into three different classifications. And again, even in North American native uh, legends and mythologies, they have the little people and they break them into three classifications as well. But in the fairy mythos, you have uh, gnomes, which are kind of ugly ones, and goblins, and you have a leprechaun type one, which is mischievous and has knowledge and and stuff and treasures and then you also have uh, the little people which are the the good-looking ones in in the gnomes uh, which are the ugly ones they have uh, a small little one that is uh, gray in color and uh, they have flying machines and in over in Scotland for example I actually call them the gray neighbors as opposed to the, the little grays and they kidnap people and they do experimentation on them and I give a fairy abduction and they have these flying machines that come out of portals um, and they're trying to replenish their uh, their gene pool so that they can continue to produce through scientific uh, experimentation. And I give a description of an account of a fairy abduction in the book. And if you didn't know I was talking about uh, a fairy abduction, you'd swear it was a great alien abduction. And so wow. when we talk about the aliens and we talk about the little people and we talk about things like the Lord of the Rings, which is, a, again, a, a cultic version of prehistory with hobbits and elves and whatever else you have for little people in there, they're talking about a recorded history from their belief system. And I think that somehow some of these little people also survived uh, and maybe very much related to the, uh, the alien mythos. And again, in the alien mythos, you have several different kinds. And you have, you know, reptilian-type people, which again may connect back to the reptilian nature of the seraphim angels and the Nephilim, or maybe just another reprobate race that was created. I actually think they created more than one reprobate race in the antediluvian epoch, because I think the whole world was corrupted. Not only plants, not only humans, but all sorts of other beings, and some of them perhaps survived. That's speculation, but I think it's connected. Wow, that's really interesting. I don't know that... Uh anyone's brought up fairies and gnomes as part of the, the, the narrative with the Nephilim, but w the walk away for me is, um, Basil, I think, uh, you think this is our fairy first? 
<laughs> the fairy. Gnomes are time. the genie. Gnomes are the genealogists, and gnome is one of the the basis for the word uh, gnostic. And genome. 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 Yep, gnomes. Yep. <laughs> well, that that's pretty fascinating. You know, it, we've spent some time going over, you know, various uh, what you'd call mythical creatures, and we have other guests who bring in various other mythical creatures as well. But you know, the things like gnomes and fairies are actually pretty f- widespread. Uh, uh, you know, s- sort of everywhere. Myth- yeah, mythical creatures, they're the same type of thing, just like giants. They show up all over uh, the world, at least in, in the, the mythology or whatever you have whatever you have it. And all throughout literature, from Shakespeare to uh, uh, Ovides to uh, Greek mythology to everywhere. The Smurfs. The Smurfs are Nephilim. We, we figured it out, Basil. Uh, oh, gons. <laughs> Okay, so now, uh, I, before we move on, I mean, uh, do you cover a, a sort of a wide range of mythical creatures in the book, or is that just a, a, a nice little fairy uh, uh, rant you go on? Well, um, I, I will cover fairies in detail in the book. Um, I'll link it to the uh, alien mythos, but I'm more interested in how the fairy allegories and the different types of fairy connections, because even when you get into Gnosticism, fairy imagery is loaded in um, uh, the, the, the Gnostic religion. And Are you familiar with, uh, I think it's a Netflix, I think it came out on the BBC, Jonathan Strange and Dr. Norell. No. Uh, it, it's a, I don't know, it's kind of, I, I've described it as a Harry Potter meets the odd couple in Victorian England. And uh, not to give too much away for anybody who's into researching that show there, but um, fairies play a huge role in that uh, story, but it is sort of a Lucifer type character, but he's, he's a fairy. It's very, it's very interesting. It kind of brought up, um, it's interesting that you bring up fairies because that, that got me interested in sort of their place in the world. So the, uh, in the uh, Gnostic religion, it's the Cathar elven bloodline, or elf is an elf, um, that holds the fate of the uh, the Grail bloodlines. And again, in their belief system, I mentioned the Grail before, this is the bloodlines of the Nephilim. And understand they trace through two allegories, the female bloodlines and the male bloodline. So the fairy is is, is the matriarchal bloodline. And so the Elven bloodline is the Magianic bloodline of the Shining Ones of the Elven race of the fairies. And Magianic is the exact word that they use. And so this is part of how, you know, the genealogies that they're keeping track of, and it's part of the Gnostic religions. And uh, uh, I'll I'll give plenty of examples of that in the back. They're going to take that fairy matriarchal bloodline all the way back to Lilith and Tiamat. Wow, all the way back to Tiamat. Huh. Yep. Yeah, talk about wow. that a little bit, the the sort of creation narrative. Um, do you discuss that in the book at all in terms of, uh, you know, the, the creation mythos of the Sumerians and how there may be some connection to the biblical account? 
Yeah, they're telling the same story from uh, a polytheist perspective as what is being told in Genesis. Um, now, they don't have all the details in the right order and everything, but yeah, whether or not it's... And I do have a chapter in my book, uh, 98 chapters, and so there's a, it's, it's, it's a book that Whoa. has... Yeah, and it's 800 pages, and it's loaded with information that just keeps coming at you all the way through. So Tiamat is the same as Leviathan, or as Lotan, and this uh, creature is recorded in all mythologies around the world, just different names. And they're telling the same story. Is there a connection with the Leviathan in, you know, I've heard connections to the Milky Way galaxy, which has the ties to the, you know, the, the mystery religious symbol of the Ouroboros. Where does that come into the, the picture? Well, I've not seen a connection where it takes it to the to, to the Milky back to the Milky Way, but the Ouroboros is a, is you know that goes right back to 3500 BC, and uh, they believe in Rosicrucian circles that that was the mark of Cain. Um, whether or not that's true or not, that's uh, certainly what they what they believe. And that's really interesting with um, you know some of the recent events and and even Protestant sort of arms of church uh, with the the Together 2016 event where a bunch of Christians got together. Uh, the big symbol was this, it, you know, it was called Reset 2016. It was supposed to be this arrow resetting, but I mean, come on, folks, that is kind <laughs> <laughs> do a little homework, you know, before you come up with a symbol. If you're going to have a Christian sort of thing, I don't know. I just, it, it yeah, troubles that was, me. That stylized Ouroboros was uh, offside, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a little, <laughs> a little obvious, but um, you know, that's the kind of thing that makes me go, come on guys, you know, and you got the Pope speaking there and there's just a level of let's, let's do a little bit of due diligence, you know, <laughs> do a little bit of cracking of the Bible or, or some of these books like yours. Um, it's just troubling, but, um, yeah. Is... So one of the things that my book does is, is for the first time it creates one narrative from Genesis to revelations. And, um, I also wanted to, uh, you know, bring a lot of new information to the table, which, um, I think the book is loaded with new information. And I also wanted to bring some credibility to this genre and take some of the speculation out. So everything I have that I write about is documented and you can find my sources. So if you want to know the, where the history, the, the legends of Freemasonry comes from, that's Albert Mackey is an example who wrote the history of Freemasonry. Um, and you'll see all the sources and uh, people find uh, that the bibliography is one of the best things that they kind of get out of the book. Uh, I get good reviews on the book and all the thoughts I connect, but they really like the idea of uh, knowing where they can find that information. Now, before we start wrapping up here, um, do you cover the theory that Hillary Clinton is a millennia-old uh, ailing fairy <laughs> and Donald Trump is an oversized gnome? <laughs> does, does that make an appearance anywhere in there? Yeah, no. And where no. does that fit into the global conspiracy? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm not convinced that either one is going to uh, be all that uh, all that helpful to the Christian cause, but we'll see. Um, I think it's just a matter of uh, what speed and what things that, the, that they're working on, but uh, uh, so... I think this is a very important election, but uh, I think I think we'll see more, you know, New World Order things if Hillary gets in. I think it'll be slowed down from one aspect, but I mean, I think 
I think Trump will just speed up some other aspects. So. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. Sorry for the bad news. <laughs> no, that's okay. You know, I just wanted to make sure. I, I didn't want to, to have to lay awake at night and wonder yeah. about that yeah. and, re- yeah. and regret not asking you. <laughs> yeah, based you, on you all really your research. The hard-hitting stories here on Canary Cry. Yeah, and they're going to be dated, too, you know. Just in a few weeks, people are going to be listening to this. And, oh, there's Basil asking that question. Uh, yeah, um, we knew she was the fairy the whole time. Well, now, yeah, you, I, yeah, I, I think uh, things really start to move quickly, you know, starting uh, in 2017. So I think all yeah. the end-time events start to speed up quickly. Yeah, well, let me ask you this. This is... um. I'm sure it makes an appearance based on the volume of uh, information that you have in your book. Um, there's been a lot of talk about planet X, you know, it's been a thing uh, that's been around for a while. Um, you know, I've seen books even written 2017, the year, you know, planet X comes, uh, what's, what's the whole deal with planet X with the whole narrative? Well, it goes back into Sumerian mythology for the most part, and it's also known as Nibiru. And Stitchin really made it kind of famous in the 70s with his translations and his ancient alien uh, mythology. Um, And there's a lot of talk that the Lucifer telescope is, you know, was set up to track that and everything in the Vatican. So there's, I mean, it's got this whole life uh, about it. Um, you know, I, I don't know whether or not there's a planet that's coming or not. I know uh, uh, there's a lot of people that, that believe it, but uh, I don't think we need uh, Planet X showing up uh, to introduce aliens, or I don't think we need it to uh, uh, scare people in, in, into world government with it. Um, I, 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 I just not convinced that um, that it's really is part of this whole thing. And I know there's going to be signs in the skies and things like that, but um, I, I just, there's just not enough there for me to, to, to substantiate uh, yeah. anything to do with Nebrew or planet X. I think it's very far out there. And I know some people will even look at it as wormwood. I don't, I mean, if planet comes that close, the whole planet is destroyed and that's not what prophecy talks about. So, Right. You know, I always thought that was interesting. Like, can't there just be a disaster that's not prophesied in the Bible? Like, isn't there, can't there just be one, like, huge cosmic thing that is that we don't have to, like, try to obscurely connect to some passage? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? Well, I think prophecy is fulfilled in ways that surprise people surprises people, and um, it comes about uh, in a way that surprises people as well. And I think catastrophic change is one of those things that comes about. And if you look at most prophecy, it takes catastrophic change to, to, to um, move things forward. Um, but I do believe 2017 is, um, you know, a very significant year. And, uh, I, I, and just, you know... I connect a few sort of outside things to say, I think 2017 is a year where things start to move. I don't know whether you're familiar with the uh, the prophecy of the Jubilees, but uh, that has the end time starting in 2017. Right, 5777. Um, that means the world's ending in 2017. We're just moving into the Magianic era, era by the Jewish belief system. Um, 
and you know you're getting into a, a, a time period of 2017 and 2037 with depending on what you think a generation is from the creation of Israel or Jerusalem uh, as to you know are we moving closer to that end time so I, I kind of think that we're, we're 2017 is one of those crossroads years and there's so many other different things going on around the world about 2017 that you know it's got nothing to do with the Bible it's just that um, they're looking for for change in 2017 so uh, I, th- I think it's going to be an interesting year but it's just the start. Yeah, and you know, prophecy, in my opinion, is really cyclical, right? There's a, it's not like a one-to-one prediction fulfillment t- kind of approach, although that that is certainly an aspect. Um, it almost seems like as the more I study biblical prophecy, it's more like inevitable things of of human sort of endeavor. You know, <laughs> like there's, yeah. there, it's kind of um, the overall picture you get from the biblical narrative is that. You know, human beings in, in the fallen state and just, just the way that sin has corrupted our hearts, there there's just an ultimate end that that is not good, that that you know takes over you know the globe, so to speak, or whatever. And <laughs> um don't start. <laughs> I know. Uh and, and and that sort of thing seems to reflect on where we are today and all the technology that's being built and um, you know, I wish more people would speak on those terms or look at those terms, but where do you um you you put so much effort and in, in time into this? Number one, how long did it take you to write this? And number two, what sorts of projects do you have in mind to sort of you know uh, to top this one? <laughs> well, um, I'm a, I'm a prophecy buff at heart, and uh, so I've been studying prophecy since uh, about 1980, and. Uh, so as I was logging prophecy, I came along um, and I logged all the different narratives. And I got like 15 or 25 books I'd like to write on prophecy. Um, but I thought I would start with what I was hoping was going to be my shortest book, which was let's connect uh, these interesting characters out of Genesis 6. And I see them showing up after the flood. And then I, you see demons and the abyss and fallen angels in the end time. And you have Jesus talking about you know, it's going to be like the days of Noah on his second coming. So I thought I would, you know, write my first book, on my shortest book, and sort of cut my craft on that one and uh, go from there. And it turned out to be probably the longest book I'll, I'll ever write. So um, I'm certainly not going to try and write a longer book because this, this one uh, took me, um, you know, if I combine all of the years of prophecy, it's like 30, I don't know, almost getting closer to 40 years. Um, yeah, but actual writing of this book, um, yeah, it took me after, after that, it would be, you know, 15, 16 years just to write the book, just to get it down on paper. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. That's like a yeah. teenager. Yeah. That's, so I, that's I, spent, I, spent, I spent a lot of time on it. And uh, so what, what am I going to do afterwards? Well, I, I'd like to write some more books, but, uh, and I've got one that started, um, and it's about, um, you know, kind of starts in the Nephilim area, but not, I'm, I don't really want to write another Nephilim book. I, my next one is about the Holy Covenant and uh, the beginnings of Israel, the lost tribes of Israel. Maybe I'll make some mythology and history into it as well. With 
but I don't want to make it too long, but I want to get it to the point of the end time again in the book and talk about how the lost tribes are going to awaken in the end time and connect that to Revelation 12 and the abomination and fleeing to the desert with the people of Judea, the people of Israel waking up and Jesus coming back and leading the uh, second exodus to safety. Very cool. Boom. Sounds like a, sounds like a page turner. Hopefully. All right. Well, thank you so much. I mean, uh, I, I think we're running a little bit short on time. Gons here. How you doing over there? I'm good. Oh, okay. <laughs> you want to keep going, well, Basil? If you're good. I'm good. <laughs> well, what about Gary? How's Gary feeling? I'm good. I'm good. I've done, I've, you know, I do uh, usually three shows a week. Some of them are three to four hours long. So, yeah, I saw you've oh. uh, made the rounds on, on plenty of shows here. So we're, we're sort of late to the the uh, the Gary Wayne uh, bandwagon, Basil. We're, we're we're behind on this uh, uh, this this remarkable book here. But well, then we got to get into the good stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, what, usually, usually, usually after the first show, we you know I get called back and we dig into some uh, specific subjects and really get all of that information out that somebody might be interested in. So, like, what five hundred one c threes do you donate to? <laughs> what are your tax records? Gosh, you're so political I right now. I guarantee you I've never lost a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Holy smokes. Yeah. Uh, what, what about, okay, since we have a few minutes here, what about the your opinions about the uh, the mark of the beast and image of the beast? Um, it's there in Revelation 13. I'm sure it's a, a point that you hit on pretty hard in the book. I'm sure it connects to all the things that start in Genesis six there. And um, so what's your take on that? In terms of um, what it's going to look like or what specifically? Well, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, uh, the implications, um, you know, based on some of the things that I've looked at, uh, there's an element of um, non-redemption for anyone who takes the mark and worships the beast. And uh, to me that, that, suggests um in line with again matthew 24 and what jesus says there as the days of noah that something genetically changes almost like you are abandoning humanity at that point um in some way and i feel that where we're headed with technology that we've mentioned transhumanism but beyond that with the technological singularity and, and this idea of the elites you know pushing for godhood through the use of technology this seems to be uh, the vehicle by which some of these prophecies can be fulfilled. But what are your thoughts in terms of the implications there of the mark? Well, I think certainly uh, to get people to take the mark, other than that they'll need it to survive if um, that's what they want to do. Uh, I think it's offered as well with an offer of uh, some sort of uh, immortality. And so I think that's where this all this transhumanism starts to come in, because they have to offer something to say we're going to fight against you know, the God of the Bible. And so I think that's going to be a big part of it. And obviously, whatever that implant does of whatever it is, um, and who knows what, what the technology is uh, continuing to develop at, what that uh, actual mark is going to be, um, it obviously will have an impact on the corruptness of the body. And you know, we even read in Revelations where um, the people who wear the mark, they break out with these sores. So is is that uh, something that's used to uh, uh, 
relay uh, a, a judgment from God to have them break out in stores, sores, or does it somehow uh, hurt the body in the end? It's hard to know what that is, but there's, you know, it's only the people with the mark that are going to have those sores um, who are left at that time. So this mark is a, they're going to take an oath with it. It's, it's, they are swearing their allegiance to the fallen angels and the Antichrist. They are swearing to rebel against God and to fight against God and Jesus. Uh, and this is an ultimate sort of unforgivable sin because the people who take the mark, I mean, they're, they're going to burn in, in the, in, in the fire for forever and ever. And uh, so it seems that they're not going to be permitted the second death. So this is a very, very solemn decision. And so they're going to have to entice it uh, in a way that people will want to take the mark um, and people will be deceived. Uh, so it's going to have to be a significant offer, I think. Um, but at the same time, the world's going to be gone not mad, but drunk with the uh, idea of the Antichrist solving all of the problems, at least in the first half, and, and seeming very much godlike and raising his throne into into heaven. And uh, uh, they may just actually, you know, fall for the deception, but they will have to swear their allegiance to uh, to to the Antichrist. And this is the the, the signature mark of the rebellion. Right. And I have to ask just because, you know, I'm, I'm sure the audience is curious, uh, is your position on the rapture? Just just so, you know, uh, we kind of get an idea of where you're thinking the church might yeah. be in all this. So uh, the first thing I want to preface is, is uh, I respect everybody's position on the rapture, and I don't think anything that's you know, we talk about in the Bible should be a wedge issue with Christians, because that's certainly not what I want to try and do. But you, you do have to take some positions on some things, or at least from your own conclusions. And I'm, I'm uh, a person that believes that uh, uh, anything that you're going to do in prophecy or in uh, doctrine is, is you should line up all of the verses and not just take the ones that sort of fits your predetermined uh, conclusions. So right. Confirmation bias. Pardon me? A confirmation bias, sort of. A, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so when I line everything up, uh, I see it more as a mid-trib or slightly after um, uh, occurrence. And uh, you know, one of the books that you know, I do want to write is on that. And I did, I did a, uh, I did a uh, speech at a prophecy conference uh, in May on the trumpets and the days of the trumpet. And, you know, I know a lot of people don't, um, like to use the trumpets uh, as a marker, but it is one of those significant markers that if you recognize it as a marker and match it up with Old Testament and New Testament prophecies and the Feast of the Trumpets, it's uh, it's very, very enlightening. But the biggest thing that got me sort of leaning in that direction and backing up, because it goes back to another ways of things that I like to, to, to approach doctrine of prophecy is, is I like to go to what Jesus says about everything first and then assemble everything around that. And so when I go to Mark 24 and Mark, uh, Matthew 24 and, and, and Mark and, and the Gospels, and I, I see the timetable of uh, the abomination which will lead into the, into the Exodus, and then I talk, I, I see he leads into, uh, 
you know, blowing the trumpet and his banner is going to be seen from uh, all over the earth and then he's going to uh, collect the people. I look at that as a significant marker that I start to look at and say, how do I arrange everything else around? And I know people will say, well, he's talking to the Jewish people, but that's not really true because they're just already flewing off to Judea and the Israelites are going to be going off in the second exodus. So this is designed for uh, Jesus' second coming, because he comes for the rapture and exodus at the same time, and then comes back again for Armageddon. Very interesting uh, take there. Um, It's weird because you you have elements that I've heard pre-trib people pose, and then there's elements that seem like you agree with, with a a pre-wrath view, which is kind of where I'm at. But you also sort of, with the trumpets, you kind of have this um, post-trib uh, element to it. So you're, you're very eclectic. It's a, uh... well, yeah, no, I wouldn't go post-trib. I'm not there with the trumpets on post-trib. Okay. Uh, no. Okay. So more of a mid and yeah. I, I say pre-wrath because the pre-wrath, what it says is that it's been mischaracterized as mid, mid-trib, but it's not really mid-trib. It's the midpoint is the de- abomination of desolation. Sometime between that point and the end of the seven years is the rapture is sort of the way the pre-wrath position is, is uh, described. So, um, yeah, and I look at the wrath bulls coming out after the abomination as well. And so, you know, to be saved from the wrath, as long as you're saved from that, whatever that means, um, I'm, I'm fine with that. Right, right. And it, it all seems to surround the wrath of God and, and the um, the day of the Lord, as uh, Joel 2 and, and, uh, and Isaiah and, and so many different Old Testament books refer to, and then obviously, you know, consistently throughout the New Testament. So. Yeah, that's really interesting, and I'd love to, you know, get more info on that and where your uh, sort of radar is in terms of the timing and stuff. You know, although I get it, you know, it's it's that discussion that has been used for divisive purposes, and I understand people don't want to discuss it, but it is important, I think, to to some extent, um, you know, because there is a level of uh, complacency might be too harsh of a word, but. Uh, I would say the sort of lackadaisical, eh, it's all going to work out. We're all going to be fine. Raptured before any of this happens attitude that, uh, could play jaded with it. Yeah. Yeah. And and it could play right into actually the deception. Um, I think it does actually, because as soon as, um, we see the person that is negotiate, who negotiates the, uh, seven year covenant, um, that's the start of the rise of the antichrist to power. And, uh, Christians are going to say, that's the Antichrist. It's when he's crowned, that's when he's actually introduced in, in, in how I understand things, but we'll know who he is. And, and they're going to be protesting against the person the rest of the world is in love with. Right. Yeah. That's going to be difficult too. <laughs> um, we're going to be a bunch of meanie heads. We're, we're already a bunch of meanie heads, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You should read some of the, uh, the posts I get, but anyway, um, Anything else, Basil, you want to tackle before we wrap it up here? You know, you know, I, I thought it was very enjoyable. I, I was, uh, I mean, I could have checked out after the fairies. That was wonderful. <laughs> Is there any other area that you might think you might investigate that, you know, like the fairies and gnomes in connection to the Nephilim? It doesn't necessarily have to be the Nephilim, but more of the uh, crypto sort of creatures uh, in connection to any other research? Are you planning to do any of that? No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, um, 
you know, some people have said, well, you, there's so many other areas that you could write on, and I, I didn't do anything on North American giants. And I also took 25% uh, out of the book to, to get the, get the book published. But um, I'm not looking at uh, writing another book on, on the giants. I think, uh, I think my book uh, does a good job of uh, getting new things on the table and uh, I think uh, I'm ready to move on to some other things I'd like to to get out there. So, well, good for you, buddy. twenty five percent. You had over a thousand pages. Yeah, you're a monster. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's it's number one in the Kindle store for uh, uh, theology for super long and, books. Yeah, and, and theology or anthropology, and um, it's in top five in some other categories. So you're doing well with it. Is it a uh, are are people responding well to it? Yeah, I'm uh, very, very happy uh, with the response on it. You know, um, let's say you go to Amazon and you look at uh, the uh, how people are evaluating. It's getting, um, you know, about close to 80% five-star and then 10 to 12% four-star. So very happy with that. You can't please everybody. And it is a long book, and uh, I make no apologies for it because – Again, I want people to have this as a book that they can go back to over the years and as a reference book. So uh, it is loaded with information. So uh, getting very, when any, for the most part, anybody responding to me on Facebook is just loving the book and they just love the information and they love it as a, as a resource center. So, well, there um, you go, everybody. Make sure to get your hands on it. It's a doozy. Yeah, so it's available through Amazon, uh, most online bookstores, Barnes and Noble. It's a little bit in short supply right now as a distributor to everybody but Amazon went um, bankrupt. Uh, the pipeline's being refilled. Uh, Amazon's been oversold. They buy direct from the publisher, so they get product every week, but they're not catching up. So hopefully there'll be more out there fairly quickly. And if you do want one um, sooner than what Amazon is delivering, you can go to my website at uh, genesis6conspiracy.com and uh, buy from me, and I'll get one out to you right away. Can you uh, anagram on it? I, I don't anagram, but I do sign them all. Okay, there we go. Perfect. Basil, I think I think we lost your connection a little bit there. Anagram the right word. Did I just make up a word? I think you're sounding. I think, I think so. you're a robot. <laughs> you sound like a robot, Basil. Are you there? I don't think he's there. I think I think his cheap hotel internet connection is failing us. But at least we'll oh, be in the I'm conversation. Oh, oh no, robot Basil. Bleep blop bloop blop bleep bloop bloop. Am I back? Uh, nope, nope. I don't think so. No, you're 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 there. Oh, okay. Am I okay? Good. Oh, okay. Well, I, I I'm gonna need the wrap, or else this is this whole hotel is gonna explode. <laughs> Somebody's gonna come kick in my window, repelling from the roof, and take me away. So, Gary Wayne, why don't you uh, give us the? How do people get in contact with you? What's your website? How can we find you and learn more about everything that you're doing? Yep. So you can also contact me through my website at genesis6conspiracy.com. You can follow me on Twitter at GaryWayne63, and you can contact me um, on, at those locations as well as on Facebook under Gary Wayne, and I have two Genesis 6 Conspiracy pages. And if you do get a hold of me, I will get back to you. It may take me a day or two, but I do respond to everybody who uh, has a comment or a question that they want to ask. And uh, I tend to uh, do regular postings, so uh, follow me through Facebook. That's my main point. 
Awesome. Very good. Get in contact with him. He is. He, he answers back. That's a very noble cause. Gary Wayne, thank you so much for coming on the show, buddy. Well, thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it tonight. <laughs> oh, still eating after all this time. Oh, so good, Basil. Good. This is this. You're just gluttonous at this point. You need mm, to repent. Sorry, it's delicious. It's like a pita situation over here. That was a um, crunchy pita. Usually, pitas are are soft and. Yeah, they make their own pita here. I think, I think they fried it. Fried pita? Anyways, uh, we hope you guys like this episode. Uh, the, you should definitely go check out that book. I mean, just the information on the fairies and stuff, i that's something that's been widely ignored. I mean, you can get a million books on the Nephilim, but going into other mytho- mythological creatures, I think, has a lot of value when um, p- p- kind of piecing together a you know, sort of a holistic worldview um, involving ancient things. Hey, well, what do you say, Gons? Well, well, Basil, you know, you're showing your um, sort of lack of being in touch with uh, stuff going on in our little niche community here. Uh, why, why you got to do that, man? Why you got to razzmatazz me like that? I'm, I'm not. I'm not throwing you under the bus. It's more <laughs> in of, front um, of my friends. All these friends who are listening. Well, well, I, I'm only saying that uh, because here's the here's the other thing too. I'm not following this whole story closely either. What I'm about to talk about here, but it has okay. to do with fairies, and I'm sure listeners okay. um, are familiar, or some listeners at least uh, have been tracking the whole um, L.A. Marzuli sort of fiasco surrounding the fairy. <laughs> and, oh right. Um, well, yeah. There's that. Well, you know, they figured out that it was, uh, you know, just a hoax and it was made out of yep. sticks or whatever. Like what I sorry. I just I don't know how that can happen. I I don't know. I I we love how, LA. how it got so far. Yeah, like I, I mean without realizing it was made out of sticks. Yeah. That's yeah. You I mean, know, just, I don't I mean, know. I, I guess it can happen, is, but I think when you get into the research and you spend a lot of time trying to figure these things out you know you you want things to be real and true and you really don't know until you actually get in there with a with the old bowie knife and take the thing apart well that's the thing too i was thinking you know handling it as if it was an actual specimen you'd be very careful right so i would imagine there were you know certain protocols or something but um, well here's something i don't know if you know because he talked about it when we were when i well when i was in at the conference uh, a few months ago right uh, i was at the la marzuli luncheon and uh you know he talked about it and and the way he spoke about it is he wasn't allowed or he chose not to take it out of the jar until they got it to an official lab okay and so there so, you go there, so, there's you know, I don't some reason i don't think he actually got his hands in in the formaldehyde until you know th- there was some official official documentation going on right well i just bring that up not because i'm trying to you know uh, say anything bad about la i'm just uh you know just to bring up this idea of fairies kind of being uh at the not a forefront per se but just in the discussion you know surrounding the nephilim thing and oh, steve Quayle I, wrote, I wrote a book about the little believe- people and yeah, I, I surely believe that they be, that they belong in the discussion, especially with all the uh, the weight um, that other cultures, as well as other you know the mystery religions and occultism and witchcraft and all that you know place heavy uh, well you know some sort of of emphasis on fairies as a species. Yeah, and you have you know movies like Epic and Arietti and you know 
It's really and TV shows like Jonathan Strange and Doctor Norrell, or yeah. whatever Mister Norrell, like that the one you mentioned. Oh. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that, and and there, it's almost it's funny because as these sort of fringy, even more fringy topics or un, what seemingly are unrelated topics get covered, you know, I mean, we've already reached sort of an apex of like absurd topics. You know, I just hope we can kind of keep it grounded, but I don't know. It seems like we're we're starting to cover so much ground. It's like we really have to go to the absurd to continue to be sensational. Well, maybe they're not absurd. Maybe it's just an unexplored area. You never know. There was a time when the very thought of Nephilim was absurd. Actually, it was not absurd, and then it became absurd, and then now it's not absurd again for some of us. That's what I would say. Okay. Because right. if it Whatever was a reality say, and they're running around, it's like, it's not like absurd. It's like, it's, it's real, you know? Well, I yeah. guess maybe it yeah, is no, absurd. It's no, like, I, maybe Noah's sitting there going, this is ridiculous. God, we got to do something about this. <laughs> these, these weird guys are ridiculous. This is absurd. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm following. All okay. right, everybody. Well, there you go. Hope you enjoyed oh. this episode of Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune into Canary Cry News Talk. Uh, go ahead and subscribe there. You will not regret it. I'll tell you that much right now. Yep. Right, Gons? Yep. Okay. And uh, just because we're wrapping up here and this, you know, we were not so good on this episode. Um, we can Don't at least, say that. We can at we least, did. we did okay, I guess. We, we, we're going to leave, uh, I want to leave you guys with a little plug for Revising Reality, a biblical look into the cosmos. It's a book that uh, I was, uh, you know, I got to participate in. It's got Anthony Patch, Josh Peck, Doug Woodward, with a forward by Standeo. It's pretty awesome. So check that out on Amazon. You can purchase your copy. That's my plug and do it. That's it. Do it. It's going to be great. So many great books. You need to have them in your library for when you're, you're deep in study and you need to make a reference and, and get some solid research and guns did guns helps. Yay. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for sticking through this one. Uh, thanks for listening to Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune in to the next episode. It's going to be great. But until then, think outside the cage.